and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in our new studio. Um, so far, we've recorded one episode, and this is our second Winging It session in our new studio, which is an empty office on campus that they gave to us. We have been in the process of decorating it. I will note that uh, Ben and Peter were in here doing work the other day. I have a picture of a bee and a wasp on the wall, and uh, I'm suspecting it was Ben. Mike, would you agree? I'm sure it was. Ben uh, vandalized the picture of the wasp. So I am trying to to think of what I should do in reply to that. Um, But more seriously, just a little intro. We are a podcast of the 1517 Podcasting Network. They have a number of podcasts. I encourage you to check that out at 1517.org. You can find out more about us at letthebirdfly.com. Uh, we have been producing, for the most part, daily. I mean, for a few months now, we've only missed a few days. Daily devotions. We now have a a bevy. Would that be the the right term? Uh, it's pretty good. Bevy is a, 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 a stable of authors who are contributing, pastors. Many of them you'll be familiar with. If you are a regular listener, they have been on the show before, who have been contributing devotions to, and I have to say, pretty good devotions so far. Um, we have, we're over 200 email subscribers for those devotions. We set those to go out at 4 a.m. every morning. So if you want a devotion in your inbox, you can uh, sign up for those at letthebirdfly.com. You say it goes out at 4 in the morning? Yep, we changed it. Peter made me change it from 6 to 4. Okay, if you're up at 4, go back to bed. Yeah. It'll be there. But it'll be in there. And uh, we also do post those on Facebook, Twitter, uh, sometimes links on Instagram. So if you're not following us on those three social media networks and you're on them and you want to follow us, you can find us there. Um, as always, we'd ask that if you're enjoying the winging it or the episodes, please do subscribe. That really helps us. iTunes ratings and reviews are a big help too. Um, Caleb was just explaining the other day again how a lot of the podcatchers really get their feed through iTunes and those ratings and reviews really help kind of boost a podcast so that it becomes more visible just to a general audience. So if you enjoy the conversation, you think it's helpful, um, you think more people should know about it, rating and reviewing us on iTunes is probably the single biggest way you can help with uh, getting us more visibility uh, besides unless I guess if you want to send us money to boost stuff. But uh, we uh, we pretty much try to keep all that in-house and we don't want your money, so please don't do that. But maybe uh, consider rating, reviewing, subscribing. Now, where are we at? We are in Winging It session number something. I don't remember what number it is now. We're in the teens somewhere. Yeah, we've made it quite a way, uh, quite a ways, but uh, chronologically, we've made it, uh, well, if you count Luther's early life, we've made it about 30 years or more. But really, Luther's kind of life as a monk and then reformer, we're maybe about 10 years in, not even that. And we're now... Uh, Looking again at Frederick the Wise, this is part two on Frederick the Wise, um, Elector Frederick III of Saxony. But last time we looked at Frederick himself especially, and we decided that with this session, we really wanted to, to take a session to kind of talk about the political world in which Frederick found himself and that therefore Luther found himself in and having to navigate um, whether he wanted to or not as the Re- Reformation begins um, Frederick will be protecting him, uh, but how is Frederick able to do that? Um, How is the Reformation spreading? How are these territories set up? And I think we tend to think of Germany as Germany as it is now. And a lot of people don't realize the United States is actually 
older than Germany as Germany is now. Um, Germany, for most, most of its history, what we consider to be Germany or Germanic peoples or German territories, was really a, a collection of territorial states. Um, they had a sense of being German, but there was no federal government. There was no um, Germany on the map, uh, per se. That's going to have to wait for Bismarck and others later. And even after that, Germany as it is today, if you've studied modern European history, you know the borders have changed quite a bit. The organization of the country has seen some some uh, shifts and changes. It's been a pretty steady go of things since about 1946. You have East and West Germany, and then 89 Germany as a whole. But the, the boundaries kind of stay similar for those two through that. But we really today want to try to wrap our head a little bit around this thing, uh, this kind of crazy thing called the Holy Roman Empire. I think it was Saturday Night Live that would sometimes talk about it being neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Maybe it was some other skit show. I don't know. Um, well, but, an historian said that first. I can't remember who said that first. But yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I should know. Um, I probably shouldn't have brought do you it get, up. Do you get, is that where you did your research with Saturday Night Live for your doctorate? I, I tried to do most through YouTube and uh, then popular television shows, yeah. Um, but if we're going to talk Holy Roman Empire, you know, you really go back to Charlemagne, uh, the Carolingians, uh, the crowning of Charlemagne, 800 AD. I sure hope I'm not getting that wrong. That's supposed to be an important date by the Pope. Um, as kind of Rome finds itself isolated from the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, which is now by that time really known as the, the Byzantine Empire, um, they're not able to be protected by the Byzantines much. Uh, there's very big cultural differences that have evolved. There's linguistic differences between Latin and Greek, and then even um, big differences in theological emphases in the West and in the East. Um, a lot of similarity, but but definitely um, differences between West and East. Augustine is just huge as a church father for Western Christianity, and the East... Uh, obviously would recognize Augustine, but he was just not influential in the East. And we think of the Reformation as having a lot of uh, Augustinian undertones. And so the West is kind of becoming its own thing as far as its uh, cultural identity, political identities, um, ecclesiastical identity. And so this Holy Roman Empire will kind of come out of this notion of the Pope's going to transfer Rome in the emperorship or the, the Roman Empire uh, a lot of what goes with that uh, to Charlemagne. It's kind of a great scene of Charlemagne being crowned. Uh, there's debates about if he knew this was going to happen or not. It's hard to imagine he didn't have a clue. But Charlemagne was very much, you know, kind of a, um, a shooting deers and drinking beers kind of, a, a, you know, Frankish king. And, and he is in Rome where it's kind of more of a sophisticated silk robe type of setting but this really will change Europe and be very important. But this empire that develops, this Holy Roman Empire, is not um, like we might picture it of just one big monolithic thing. It's not as if the Holy Roman emperors, as they emerge um, from the Middle Ages, are like uh, the president or the executive branch of government of the United States or a prime minister of a modern nation state today. Um, they definitely are herding cats and are having to work with and through a number of kings, princes, electors, dukes, you pick the title, um, and uh, 
And so, especially to raise armies and money, they have to work through the mechanisms of, uh, you know, imperial diets, these meetings, these gatherings of the various rulers and political and ecclesiastical leaders of the day. Uh, they, uh, they're very dependent on trying to build at least some consensus from people who often have a very vested interest in not playing into that consensus. A lot of people with um, their own personal and territorial interests as well. One of them being uh, Elector Frederick of Saxony. He will be an elector. He's very important um, in the Holy Roman Empire and how it operates and with the estates. But um, but he's first and foremost about Saxony and interesting Saxony. And so maybe, Mike, if you could throw out your take a little bit, um, what is this Holy Roman Empire thing? And what do you think um, our listeners, whether they be pastors or lay people, what are some important things to understand about this? And maybe the biggest thing we can do as we go through is to debunk assumptions we might make because we're used to the modern situation of things. But any thoughts you have, Mike? Yeah, I think herding cats is probably a pretty decent um, description of what is what is going on. Um, you have individual w- rulers who are concerned primarily about their land, um, but they are also um, concerned about the broader political uh, situation of course because that affects their land so and then you have this kind of thing between what we would call uh church and state the secular versus uh versus the papacy yeah this is a big one not understand with the assumptions we come into this with. yeah and it's not it's not so clean cut of course and then you also have kind of an italian german thing right so you have this power center in rome called the pope then you have maybe a... Who has political and church power. Absolutely, and at times an army. And you also have, you know, sometimes powerful, sometimes not. You have a power structure in Venice. You have a power structure that's going to be the king of France. You have a power structure that is going to eventually be uh, the line of the Habsburgs, so uh, based mostly in Austria, but there's going to be all, uh, you know, a power structure that's going to be maybe uh, the King of England, the King of Spain, and they're going to try to marry each other, uh, their families together, and it gets very, 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 very complicated. And one of the things that sets up the power for Frederick the Wise is in uh, 1356, I, I believe, is the Golden, the Golden Bull. And so you have... Um, basically what we would call a constitution, I think maybe even called a constitution, where the emperor is going to be at least partly elected. It's going to be officially elected, but there's going to be all sorts of political things behind the scene, of course, um, by German people. So we think about this as the Holy Roman Emperor of the German people or the German nation. And we use nation there not in the way we do in America as equivalent to a state, but a group of people. And so you have individual states or individual... Kind of like Raider Nation. <laughs> yes, a type of people that has a cultural thing together. So um, so then you have this situation where you have a, a seven electors. Not all of them are going to be secular. You're going to have three uh, archbishops, the ecclesiastical electors, and they're from Mainz, Trier, and Cologne. And then you have four secular electors, the King of Bohemia, uh, the Count... 
palatinate or palatine, palatine, palatine of, of the, the Rhine. Palatinate, yeah. Right. So we, we were arguing about that before, not arguing, but trying to figure out what the exact terminology is there. We use a lot of Wikipedia before <laughs> these episodes and sessions. Um, and then you have the Margrave of Brandenburg, which is awesome. We really should, we should really call people Margrave. Like that, that seems to be a lost title. That one is really, yeah, it seems to have gone by the wayside. What, what exact, do you know exactly what the Margrave, what is it? Well, What's I think, it? you know, if we think of like Mark and Duke, like, um, you, just, I, I think it's a reference to kind of the, the type of territory it was considered at one point. Well, I right now dub you the Margrave of the third floor, Wade. Thank you. Um, I and appreciate it, that. <laughs> I suppose there's probably though an elector, um, Wait, does that mean I am also Elector Margrave of the third floor? One of seven. Uh, we should maybe figure, we'll do this off air. We'll figure but that out that makes me also there. a secular elector. Right. Okay. Uh, which is probably more accurate the way you dress. <laughs> anyway, you also have then the final one, the Elector of Saxony. So it's really kind of a, a ingenious and yet goofy kind of situation. So it's not really an emperor who's just going to run roughshod over everybody. And it's not he, even that. It's not a given that the emperor is going to be a Habsburg. It just keeps happening. No. And so who's going to be elected is a big deal. And so um, it's not like people are running for it publicly, but they're running for it behind the scenes. And they're bribing. And ca- I mean, when, when Charles V is elected, um, we talked about last time, there's a chance that Frederick was actually like um, emperor for like three hours right. as they bargained behind the scenes. But the king of France is in the game for this event. Everybody's everybody's um, eligible, basically, right? So the Pope certainly has some political um, skin in the game here. Um, he wants to balance the power. So he doesn't want the Habsburgs to be too powerful. He doesn't certainly want the King of France to be too powerful. And uh, for a lot of these people, it may be the lesser of two evils who they back. It really, um, A, Mike, I did look it up. Margrave originally was a military commander assigned to maintain the defense of one of the border provinces of the Holy Roman Empire or a kingdom. You know where I got that? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Um, so but if it we may th- or may not be right. If we think of the balance of powers, I often think of it kind of as like a Big Ten football, right? You want a strong Big Ten if we're ever going to rival the SEC. Um, You've got to have a strong Big Ten Whoever wins the Big Ten has to have had some big wins. But you don't want, unless it's your team, like in Mike's case, if it were Michigan, in my case, if it were Michigan State, well, then you would love to have Michigan or Michigan State just dominate. Um, But the balance of powers is how do you have one team that just keep one team from running away with it but have a really strong kind of top-to-bottom Big Ten but not so strong that you're going to have – trouble with it the same as you don't want to have uh oh what's it is it not still divided into leaders and something else no it's east and west that was a nonsense way to divide it um but you know wisconsin's kind of on the easy side of the big 10 no offense to those who are on that side um but just i mean look at the last few years of the big 10 and uh um you've got michigan michigan state on the harder side um you you want to maintain balance between those conferences then too And this is kind of what's going on with the Holy Roman Empire. You want a strong Holy Roman Empire. You're going to need troops and taxes from people. You want some stability. But you don't want a runaway power, right? Um, So uh, if you're going to rival France, if you're going to rival, or if you're going to be able to fight off the Turks, um, you you need strength. 
but you you don't want um, Ohio State just having five years of dominance. No one wants Ohio State having five years of dominance. <laughs> and so that's why almost the Hopsburgs would be Ohio State. Yeah, I think. What I would call it even goofy, even though it's goofy, is ingenious because. The emperor needs the German princes, and the German princes need a strong emperor. So you can just think about Albrecht III of Brandenburg uh, certainly has to play nice with the pope because he has basically bought his position, and he has borrowed money to get that position, and he has been given the okay to sell indulgences to pay back the money you that— You Albrecht he, of Mainz? Of uh, Mainz, excuse yeah. me. Um, and so— uh, you you have this situation where Albrecht needs to play nice with the papacy, but is his own man and is in the, in the electorship. And, and he is has, also related to Frederick. Yeah, they're all related, of course. Right. And But there's this kind of congeniality that maybe we used to have and maybe probably still have just maybe to a lesser extent in the United States Senate. Like, the senators are going to protect themselves even if they disagree. They're going to protect the office of senator. And so these are people that knew each other. They socialized. They did all these things. And then Frederick really um, has a lot of power and I think earns it. But he also is, is he the first cousin of Maximilian the emperor, the Habsburg? First or second. First or second. They're pretty close. And and so... They, they may have... I mean, I think they spent a lot of time growing As up As a child, together. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, Frederick the Wise, um, I believe his first cousin, or at least on the same level, but Maximilian's a little bit older, and so he sort of looks up to Maximilian, but he can also later be Maximilian's equal. And so we kind of get this impression like, okay, the emperor's over here, and the German people are over here, and um, it's a completely different level, completely different social scene. Not at all. They know each other. There's backroom dealings. They, They're they know hunting each other personally. and drinking together on the side, yeah. Absolutely. So you have this. It's kind of like a, um, when Trump got elected and they had the thing of a, um, oh, who's uh, the guy from New York, Schumer? Yeah. You know, Schumer and Trump have known each other for years, sure. have been friends, but now all of a sudden they're political opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, and the polarization of our day maybe isn't a good example, but I, I like the Senate thing of you have senators who are from different sides of the aisle, um, and they're from different states with different needs. So they're there to advocate for their state. They're there to advocate for their party. But, you know, old school, you're also a senator, and mm-hmm. you— you want to protect the power of the Senate. Yeah, so you have you have the emperor, which a centralized military power, basically. Um, you have then the individual states, and then you have these kind of electors who are a little bit higher than the regular dukes and stuff like that. And so they're the class of, I protect the office of elector. I protect my own interest. I protect the interest of my people. I protect protect the interest of the German nation. I also protect the interest of the church, and I protect the interest of the overall emperor as opposed to versus Spain, versus France, versus the Turks, whatever the political lines may be. And because Frederick um, is able to navigate all of those very, very well, and is an elector very early on at a young age and becomes kind of the senior senator, if you want to put it that way, the senior elector, people look to him and he is able to guide them. Um, He he wields a lot of power and probably would have been a good emperor, right? And people wanted him to be uh, 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 the emperor. 
Um, I don't know that he necessarily wanted to, although I'm, I'm sure he thought about it. Well, and he had periods of life where he actually leaves Saxony in the care of his brother, Johann, and uh, um, will go work with Maximilian, will kind of be very active in the imperial court. So it wasn't that he wasn't ambitious in that way, but but he seems to, to his credit of always end of the day, he recognized his obligations were to Saxony. Um, and kind of the too much work on the, for the imperial court, eventually, you know, he recognizes that is problematic for taking care of his own territory. And he seems to have backed off of that somewhat. And I think even late in life, um, he probably knew if he were elected, uh, He's trying to build something in Saxony, and mm-hmm. that probably sets that behind it. I think he really saw his legacy as Saxony and Wittenberg and the university and what he's building there. Yeah, so maybe two more things, and then we'll probably get to how Luther gets inserted into into this situation. One is, uh, you, 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 you mentioned John. Um, he is then going to take over for uh, Frederick after Frederick uh, passes away and becomes the elector of Saxony. John's son, John Frederick, then, uh, is going to take over after him. Um, That is where we mentioned uh, before, or on a previous episode, that there was a Duke of Saxony and the Elector of Saxony. You had uh, the Albertine line, the uh, the son of Albert, um, who who get maybe the, the better part of the land. Um, get the uh, of Saxony, the, be- but then the, better, the better cities, better cities, and then Ernst is going to get uh, the raw end of the deal. He's going to get the Abraham part of the you know lot, lot and Abraham dividing up the land, but he gets the electoral ship. But eventually, uh, Maurice and there's going to be a battle, and you can talk about that later if you want, Wade. Yeah, um, I think we'll have a session yeah. on that when it comes to and, that. And uh, the the Ducal Saxony ends up taking over the electorship and some of the territory as well. Now, I, I'm going to—I forget the name here, but it seems that those electors also kind of had their own little duties within this little group, and so the elector of Saxony was always— kind of the second in charge when the emperor was not around. I can't remember what the title was. So just by him being the elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise also has some other duties there. And so uh, there's another brother in there, of course, who becomes the uh, bishop of something, I can't remember. And then um, and then he has a chance, if, if I'm correct or right, to get an elector, one of the ecclesiastical electorships, but then doesn't take it. So there could have been brothers that were both electors too. So you can see the wheeling and dealing and all this is going on behind the scenes as they navigate all of this stuff. So you have this situation where Frederick then um, is kind of his own man. He's got lots of interests are pulling him and he's not afraid to say Saxony comes first in this situation. He's not afraid to say the emperor, the empire comes first in this situation, or the church comes first in this situation. And then you insert Luther in there, who is valuable to him as the ruler of Saxony and his building of Wittenberg and making Wittenberg the uh, the a premier city, at least the premier city in in Saxony, of course. But then having a university and stuff like that. But he is also encouraged by um, I think what Luther is doing in the church as a whole. And so Frederick then can become, I think we can rightly call him, the protector of Martin Luther. Um, and, and Frederick can say, I have a duty to my citizen. He can say, not publicly, but I, I, I want him for my, 
my goals in Saxony. And those far outweigh, and, and these guys, they have no problem sticking it to the Pope. They have no problem playing politics. They have no problem disobeying the emperor. It's not like these were dutiful students that just said, uh, yes, sir, all the time. They, they were not afraid to do what was in the interest that they felt um, benefited, maybe not necessarily selfishly them, but certainly their territory or the greater good. So, uh, and Frederick, wisely, we would argue, um, often sides on the Reformation. Not always, but sides on the Reformation. And a big part of getting to Frederick's protecting of Luther then is Frederick is able to play on a lot of the tensions that existed within the Holy Roman Empire um, because there was a concern about uh, the, the German part of the Holy Roman Empire not being overshadowed by foreign interests. Um, and so, for instance, Charles V is, is kind of rooted in the Low Countries, right, what we would call the Benelux region, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, uh, and Luxembourg. Uh, Charles V is not very fluent in German, it seems, by any means. The, the Habsburgs' interests are bigger than Germany, and Austria, right, is going to be largely German-speaking, so that is more a- attached to um, Germany. We, we even see that with the World Wars. Um, but there are even Catholic princes who are supportive of Luther getting a German trial precisely because they don't like the notion of one of their citizens or one of their own um, having to be carted off outside of Germany for a trial. They also don't like the idea of the Pope being able to uh, to interfere in German matters. Now, we could say, well, Luther's also a monk in the Roman Church, but he's, he's also a, a German university professor and a German monk. Um, and so Frederick is really able to navigate these things well by playing these interests against each other. And so even when Charles V will become Holy Roman Emperor, and he's legit Holy Roman Emperor, um, Maximilian is King of Austria and kind of de facto operating as uh, Holy Roman Emperor— but never, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, never duly elected to it in the proper way through the estates. Well, I think he he crowns himself. I think he was waiting for the Pope to crown him, and it never happens. And then when Charles I of Spain, his son, is elected, there still has to be this process that then he is crowned by the Pope, which goes right. back to Charlemagne, right? So you could be elector de facto, but you didn't have the... Emperor, you mean. Or emperor, but you couldn't... You, you you didn't without the coronation from the Pope, and it it's just goofy to well, us. Well, yeah, Maximilian did try in a number of ways to circumvent the normal processes too. Um, but there's this concern when Charles V is elected. You know, he's not very German, and uh, one of the things as part of his election that pressure is kind of put on him is, uh, look, we're gonna we're gonna follow um, that golden bull. We're gonna follow um, the agreements that have been made in the in the history of the empire about how it will be governed about um how germans will german affairs will be handled and so frederick is able to kind of play into that to say look we've had issues with this and a german should get a german trial right uh right charles and charles is going to kind of have to say yeah of course that would be fair at the same time charles sees himself 
as a defender of the the Roman Catholic Church, right? He's the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, that's the holy part of it. And then obviously the Roman has connotations of the papacy too, um, as well as the secular Rome. But uh, this tension then will exist for Charles V as well of, of how to balance these things. Um, I had something I wanted to bring in with that just now too. You know, well, interesting you brought, so Maximilian's son, uh, Charles, and then he has Ferdinand, and Charles the first of Spain, he he marries into that line. So you have this, Spain has a power, same with Austria, and there's some lowlands connections there. And then Ferdinand, the other son, um, becomes the king of Austria when Maximilian dies because Charles is elected to the, to the uh, um, Holy Roman Emperor. And then Ferdinand will take after, I believe, take after um, Charles the V. And, and the reason I bring that up is, when they're electing Charles V, you know, there's there's some movement for Frederick, a German, right? That would be kind of cool. But does he have does he have the money? Does he have the you know? Is he, he's a little bit older? I mean, there's quite a few things that you could think about. Why not the King of France? Well, there's obvious reasons for that, even though he was in play. Why not the King of England? Well, obvious reasons, even though he's in play. Um, maybe knowing Maximilian. Um, that his son, it was, it was the devil you knew, right? And uh, so they kind of fall there on Charles, the Habsburg, who becomes Charles V, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. But you're, you, you got your thought back. Yeah, something that I just I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind is, so we see Charles V, and he wants to be the protector of the Roman Church, and he sees himself as a good Roman Catholic. But one of the things that my honor students read is, Gicciardini's The Sack of Rome, and that's about Rome being sacked. Um, and Gicciardini is blaming the inability of the Italian city-states to come together to defend themselves, so Venice, Florence, Rome. Um, and whose troops are the troops that are sacking Rome? Charles V's. So you can even have a military operation against the Pope, against Rome, against the Papal States, by the person who, at the same time, wants to eradicate heresy uh, from his empire and wants to move against Martin Luther. So just to be clear about how many moving parts, and we see them as tensions, but he Charles V would not have seen that as an inconsistency um, in his policy or in his decision-making. As far as, uh, you know, we've talked about the electors, too, who are princes— it wasn't as if Luther never found support from the ecclesiastical electors either. Um, Herman the or Herman the Fourth of Hesse, who's Archbishop of Cologne, is one of uh, Frederick's. He's called one of his favorite colleagues, and uh, you know Frederick will know how to operate with them as well. Even Albrecht of Mainz, who sets off the whole indulgence controversy that Mike mentioned earlier, by getting a loan to get an office, he probably according to canon law, shouldn't have been able to have from the papacy, he can be somewhat sympathetic to and somewhat protective of Luther even at times. And so uh, there's a lot factoring into the dynamics of what happens. And then the other thing, just to throw in, I mentioned you needed a strong empire to ward off the Turks. Um, if Charles V or if Maximilian or if others want, uh, or if Ferdinand in Austria 
needs to fight off the Turks, and this is a constant looming threat, and it's a, a theme that comes up throughout Luther's life and his writings. They need the Protestant princes and territories. They need the troops, and they need the taxes. And this also means uh, sometimes Charles V can't act because he needs the Protestant support to fend off the Turks, or in other cases, to fight the French, right? This is, it makes uh, strange bedfellows. Right, and even the French and the Turks are at one time uh, allied. And so Charles... The the papacy even aligns with the Turks at times, yeah. So so Charles V may be here in one year from the papacy, you got to take care of this, this stupid German monk problem. And he's saying, you know what? Maybe give me some money and some troops, and then I wouldn't have to have to deal with, I mean, he's not going to say that, but deal with the Turks on one side and the French on the other side. And so uh, Charles V has no problem saying no to the Pope, right? And he's not hes not naive about the, the papacy and its own problems as well. So uh, to think about the Pope as a political player on par with these kings and secular rulers means that they're going to be playing games and people are going to be playing games against them while they are all trying to say we're a defender of the faith we're a defender of this of this truth uh, so it, it certainly is a complicated thing i got two questions for you how, how naive do you think luther was of all of this stuff does he grow into it and then i've heard that uh written a couple times that luther and frederick never met but there's a couple situations where they would have been in the same town and it sure. seems odd to me at the same time, it seems odd to me that they at least didn't, certainly they have contact through um, Spalatin, but um, it seems odd to me that they would have never, ever been face to face. I don't know what you, as your historian uh, side, thinks about those things. Yeah, they, I mean, they have extremely limited contact. Um, Frederick almost always will work through Spalatin or others in correspondence with Luther. Um, there's a couple times Frederick gets very involved, for instance, um, when Luther thinks he's going to have to leave the territory um, because he's been declared an outlaw and summoned to Rome. Uh, and it seems for a while that Frederick is going to let him leave, right? That Frederick thinks, okay, I can't do anymore. Well, Frederick will intervene. And I think that may have even been direct correspondence of a letter sent saying, don't go. Right? But um, Frederick knew he needed to be able to keep his distance um, for Luther's own good. It also just wasn't common for everyone and their brother to have contact with the court. Um, People who had access to the elector, this was very limited, and this was kind of, you know, um, I think they used the term in politics still of kind of having juice or mojo, right? And so it's very intentional that there's not a lot of contact uh, between the two. Luther, much of his preaching would have been in the the city church, the Stadtkirche, St. Mary's, um, when Frederick is going to church, he had his own chapel, which will become the, the Castle Church, um, the All Saints Foundation. And so that is purposefully limited. As far as Luther's naivete, um, I think he was able, he was capable of putting on naivete at times, but I think he was extremely naive when it came to political situations. Um, that's a big difference between Luther and Zwingli and Calvin. Zwingli and Calvin are much more involved with the, the government of the places they find themselves in. But part of that's the nature of um, the Swiss Confederation or of um, Geneva and Zurich, kind of as self-governing cities. Uh, they're very involved in, in, in uh, the city councils, how they're governed. 
Luther will be consulted on things, and Luther will be very involved in things today we would call, consider political, like the establishment of the common chest, which is kind of like a precursor of a social welfare state. Um, but uh, there's a lot of times that Luther will just say, well, well God's going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And the, the great irony to me is Luther is brilliant on God using means and on the means of grace and on vocation. And there's times where uh, Frederick's counselors will almost have to remind Luther, you know, um, when they're trying to build the um, the walls and kind of uh, armaments around Wittenberg and other cities in case there were to be attacked. And Luther says, oh, God will protect us. And, you know, he has to be reminded, well, maybe he'll protect us through these walls and cannons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a political naivete to Luther. He's the son of a minor. Um, he is a monk. Um, he is in a princely city, but he is not a regular at the court. And to be fair, too, I don't think Luther wanted to be. He didn't see himself as uh, someone who should be involved in court decisions, although um, he certainly saw things coming from the court as being fair game for preaching about or for teaching and, and for giving opinions on at times, but not in a uh, an official status. I think um, kind of this compromise that eventually is reached at Torgau later, and we'll get to that in its own session, where Luther finally is kind of won over by some of the lawyers to uh, maybe the prince does have a right to defend his territory constitutionally from the emperor. Um, this will be a big uh, shift um, and Luther and Melanchthon are kind of won over to that, but I don't even know that they're necessarily convincedly won over to that then. Um, so Luther's not like a Zwingli or a Calvin who's going to be very—Calvin's not very adept early on. That I mean, basically excommunicates the city on Easter and gets asked to leave. Um, but when he gets back later, um, they will be much more adept at na- navigating those things. Yeah, I picture— Or Thomas Cranmer in England. Luther's not like a Thomas sure. Cranmer in England. I. I see him as he's an intellectual with he's not he's not myopic by any means, but he certainly has uh, no shortage of opinions. But his focus is this theological endeavor. And and the reason I bring it up is because, first of all, Frederick is much older than than Luther. But you see Frederick going to um, to the Holy Land. He's on he's on roads. Um, he's with Maximilian. He's all over the place. Luther doesn't travel that far. Luther is, uh, doesn't know how big this thing's going to s- stir up. And yet Frederick's out there just kind of not, not in a, uh, a, um, a way where he is trying to orchestrate all of these different things, but he sees the bigger picture. And he must have thought, like, Luther, you have no idea how big this is. Luther, you have no idea how many uh, machinations are going behind the scenes, A, to protect you, but B, also against you right now. And in that way, maybe Luther was um, naive to, to not know what was going on between Frederick and Maximilian and the Pope and all this, all this kind of correspondence that we have no record of, of because they were just talking as they were hunting or drinking or whatever. And, and Luther just focused on his one thing, uh, certainly not naive in the sense that he didn't he didn't know that some of the stuff was going on, but uh, blissfully kept out of it maybe a lot of times. And I wonder if that is just as great a gift 
that Frederick gave to Luther as much as his political maneuvering to actually protect Luther? Uh, well, Frederick shows an immense amount of patience. Luther writes letters to people that he should never be writing to people according to the, the protocol of the day. Um, Luther will rip off a letter to someone, and then uh, Frederick will be informed later, usually through a somewhat panicked spelleton, um, of, you know, oh, Luther wrote to Duke George. Uh, Luther provokes Duke George again and again, um, and Frederick has to try to kind of calm George. Um, and uh, But Luther, both with political protocol and uh, churchly ecclesiastical protocol, Luther was never one that really respected that or cared much for it. We see kind of the offense he, call, he caused by how he carried himself with Cayetan uh, or other times as well. But Luther does pick a lot of fights um, with political rulers that probably Frederick would have really preferred uh, Luther let him navigate. Um, and so I do think that is something that whether that I don't think it was I don't think that was naivete on Luther's part. I think Luther just was not a protocol guy, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm supposed to, you know, if you're going to meet the Queen of England, you're supposed to do this and that and this. It it just was not in his uh, in his DNA, and and that did cause sometimes uh, rather unnecessary problems. I I think Frederick sometimes I just imagine him ha- wanting to say focus, mm-hmm. like let's do one thing at a time. Let's focus, and uh, and that's just not how Luther operated. Yeah, well, that's good. I think we probably at our time right here. There's much more, as we uh, said at the beginning of these two sessions. Uh, Frederick deserves his own book. He deserves, and there are books written about him, of course, and we mentioned those. Um, he deserves his own own history, uh, uh, probably. Um, just as influential as Martin Luther, but we're just not going to know all the details about what was going on behind the scenes. And so uh, Frederick the Wise, a key player in the Reformation. When we get back uh, for our next Winging It session in this, I think we're just about ready to hit October 1517. I think I don't think we have anything else to deal with, so we'll start getting back into chronological order here and the events that are very familiar to, to Lutherans. In Some of you Luther's may life. be rejoicing at that. We'll be back to... <laughs> the familiar Luther stuff. Absolutely. Until then, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get to my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up, another round. I set him up, another round.